Hello everyone, it's April 25th, 2023. Well, Starship finally made its attempt at orbit. It didn't make it, which wasn't that surprising. What it did manage to do though is excavate a rather large hole under itself in a matter of seconds, which also wasn't surprising. So we're gonna get into the details, no surprises there, and liftoff. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 406 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Welcome back. Thanks. What what conference were you at? I know you were in LA, but I don't I don't know oh, what right. actual conference was going on. Yeah, I listened to the show and you guys did a great job. And uh, yeah, I remember hearing you speculating. It was the ASWE conference. That's the American Society of Engineering Education. Oh, and cool. so it was, yeah, it was an interesting one. It was the Pacific Southwest chapter and it was at USC, and which is a beautiful campus. I didn't realize it's a private school. And so it's really, really nice, um, the campus. But, uh, but yeah, it was basically all... Um, people that are into engineering education. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, teachers and they, you know, a lot of the research that they do is related to like, you know, how do students learn in engineering undergrad classes and things like that. And so there were a few uh, master students, I think, that were there. But otherwise, I think we might have had the only uh, undergrads that came. There might have been one other undergrad, I think, that presented in our section. But, but it was good. It went well. The students' talk was well-received. Got some good questions. Nobody was a jerk. <laughs> and so, yeah, very happy. That's awesome that you had an undergrad presenting. What what did they study? So they've come up with um, the the other faculty I went with is at the U of A. He's uh, in the uh, chemical and environmental engineering department. And they basically, the, the three students uh, have come up with a hydroproofing testing setup. And so you basically can use either this uh, pneumatic pump to push water into whatever vessel you want to test or uh, they made uh, they also got it so that you can put a uh, hook up a power washer and they had to modify the attachment there and you could have the power washer basically increase the pressure but the idea what they were really doing is blowing up two liter soda bottles by filling them with water. And the idea being that because water is incompressible and it's not a gas, so if you wanted to actually test something, like another student in the lab wanted to test their real experiment, if you and you wanted to see, all right, well, can this thing withstand, you know, 150 PSI or 200 PSI or whatever, test it with this water and it's safe because when it finally fails, it just splashes, you know, a few yeah. feet. That's not a big deal as opposed to an actual, like, boom. And so, but yeah. Cool. And so that was the idea is they basically wrote up how this could be done in you know, undergrad engineering classes. Um, yeah, as a, a, as a different tool. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so, you know, pre-lab questions, post-lab questions, here's the setup, et cetera. So. Cool. That's awesome. Good for them. Uh, should we talk about something else that exploded? So Starship, uh, yeah, the destroyer of concrete. That's that's good. Um, I don't know who wrote that, but I was thinking of something similar. I was like, in fact, my little intro is going to be that's one way to, to dig a hole or something like that. Yeah, um, so, a somebody very, a very fast way. I think it was on. I think it was on Reddit. It it might have been in our Discord, but I think it was on Reddit. Somebody said something about like the boring company wants to know your location, <laughs> and like you know, it, it's SpaceX. So we wind up getting a lot of really good footage um, from. Folks that aren't necessarily SpaceX, right? Like SpaceX releases good footage, um, but because they've got such a good relationship with some of the journalists, um, you know, people have access to their schedule and access to um, camera locations and stuff. I mean, of course, uh, NSF uh, had one of their uh, 
one of their vehicles destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it was Lab Padre's van uh, was set up with uh, an antenna and some camera equipment or something and got smashed. So like we, we have good images and good, uh, good photos of this whole launch. And so we kind of get to, we, we can speculate about some of the things that happened during the launch, but we, I don't know when I wrote up the notes, like I'm mostly speculating about things that you do not see in the, in the footage because they happened a while ago. And uh, th- so th- I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. Um, did you guys get to watch it live? I actually did. I mean, I, I saw most of it live. What, what actually happened was I had temporarily forgotten, you know, like I should have set an alarm, but I didn't. But um, I got a text from my mom of all people. I did not expect, mm. I didn't expect that. And she said, you know, it's flying or something like that. And I quickly went to YouTube and watched it. It was about like 20 seconds after liftoff. So she was like ready to go. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that my mom was even watching this. Yeah. Ma coming in clutch. <laughs> I, I, I missed it live. I, I was I missed it by ten minutes, but it was stupid. I just I think maybe with the travel and then catching a cold and then scrambling, you know, with work because I was pretty behind the eight ball on everything, and I just didn't know it was happening. And so I was just out for a walk while it was happening. So I could have just easily watched it. And instead, I just came back in from the walk. I pulled up Twitter and I suddenly saw people talking about. It. I'm like, wait a minute, did this actually happen? And then I saw not the worst. real footage of it. I was like, oh my goodness, because. When it launched, when it lit, the first thing that came to my mind was I was like, they must just be thinking like, screw it. We're just going to blast all, we're going to scorch the earth. Like, like we're going to, this is just too big an explosion. At some point they were just like, they just got to keep going. Like, I don't know. It was just so crazy how big the plume was or not the plume. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, the debris. I was like, because this was before, like you could see uh, what it did to the ground. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and the nearby ground support equipment and all that stuff, but. I just remember being like stunned, like at some point they must have been like, well, we're going to light it all anyway. So let's just see what happens. I mean, that's basically, that's basically what what happened. But yeah, so Dennis, I was, I I probably started watching about the same time that you did. And I I was not out for a walk. I was sitting at my desk working and something like I didn't have a, a YouTube notification go off or anything. Like I just, I pulled it up and... I pulled up YouTube and I was like, oh, right. Like, I think I actually pulled up the SpaceX YouTube page. Um, but like I started the stream and it was just as Innsbrucker was saying, well, Starship's certainly given us a spectacular <laughs> event to watch today. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, spectacular is not what you want to hear. Um, <laughs> so uh, last week we kind of left off talking about how um, this was an upcoming spaceflight event. So it was originally scheduled for April 17th. Um, and we we talked, David, did it make it into the edit how how the window for the launch license included 420? So I took all that out because by that point, I knew that the launch wasn't happening. But then I forgot that there was more news about, you know, just procuring the launch license. And I kind of felt oh, bad. Right. I was like, oh, I should have kept it in. But I forgot after. I didn't think about it until after the fact. So that did not make it in. Yeah. It's like, what? I mean, what are you going to do? Like if you and it probably would have needed to be re-recorded anyway to get it to get it just right but anyway well it sucks because i called it and i i want credit for it i don't want credit for a lot of things that i say on this show (laughs) and this one totally called it yeah so they they launched they they were initially going to uh to launch on april 17th which i believe is monday um and they had a, a valve freeze stuck um somebody in our podcast discord uh had 
a very great way of explaining what happened. It was uh, a pipe. Uh, a valve is supposed to be a pipe that can sometimes not be a pipe. And in this case, it was either not a pipe or it was a pipe when they didn't want it to be a pipe. Mm. Um, but yeah, great. Ac- excellent explanation. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Um, and then the, uh, the launch actually happened on 420. Um, the stream had this wonderful graphic. Uh, it had a bunch of like uh, telemetry on screen. And like one of them was like uh, an attitude, like a, a, a pitch attitude indicator. There was also two indicators for the first stage engines and the second stage engines and showing which ones were uh, active uh, and healthy. And interestingly enough, Sam in the chat noticed that on the stream, uh, they showed six engines out, but when you look at the at the footage, uh, it looks like a total of eight engines uh, were out. And I think this might just be like an instrumentation issue where they knew that there were issues with eight engines, but the data that they export over to their streaming setup uh, ha- like necessarily has to be less detailed. So there has to be some sort of threshold that Uh, is enough to toggle that graphic off. Um, In this case, I didn't get to it. But in the stream, you can see one of the out engines. It's um, one of the center three engines um, is kind of flashing. And uh, folks in our chat were talking about this flashing engine. And I think the the consensus was that it was just uh, leaking propellant. But I, I disagree because the brightness is on the same uh, magnitude, I guess, like the same order of magnitude as some of the other engines. It's clearly not as bright, but I feel like it's it's awfully darn bright for being next to some very, very bright objects. So my guess is that it is um, incomplete combustion or I guess incomplete burnout, but like for real, it, it could it could just be a leak. Um, it, it's, it's pretty tough to tell, but I, yeah, I thought I thought the stream looked really fantastic, um, like all, all the graphics, and that's you know something that SpaceX is kind of known for. Yeah, it looked really cool. It uh, just watching the engines on camera, you know, like as it was tracking, just looked it just looked pretty. Looked it very, really did. very, yeah, very it's sci-fi. A, it's a heck of a lot of uh, a heck of a lot of engine on the back of this mm-hmm. thing. So what's really neat is um, uh, the National Weather Service tweeted. Um, a, uh, a an image and a gif of this launch right the national weather service normally is not terribly concerned about rocket launches but they actually picked up uh the rocket launch on goes east this is actually something that that i believe happens fairly often um but in this case uh a, a slightly more unusual thing happened which is that um the termination explosion um, was picked up as a lightning flash um, in their uh, their lightning data product, right? So like goes collects all this data and then they process it into data products that you can access. Um, and like the lightning uh, data set is really good because like you don't have to go and find your own lightning strikes in this in this satellite data. Uh, satellite imagery, satellite footage, like they can just like highlight those data strikes for you. Um, but it turns out that they actually have another data product that I had never heard of, and it's a rocket launch data analysis thing. So like they actually have this lovely GIF 
uh, that shows um, the rocket launch. Yeah, Chris in the chat says, aren't ghost satellite side tasks to monitor for launches? And yeah, I mean, that that's exactly what this is. It's, it's very cool. Chris also, who's a pilot, says, uh, I often take a look at the lightning strikes map for work. Um, it's pretty cool that, you know, we actually have people who consume this data. Like I don't, I consume other, other data sets that uh, are put out by the, you know, a government body or whatever, but like, that, that's a cool one to just pick up. So yeah, so there, there are two really cool, uh, what one's a GIF and that's what I'll put in the show notes. But if you go to uh, NWS's Twitter account, you can also see the, um, the lightning flash uh, image that they posted. So on the stream, it was very clear that I think three engines were out at liftoff, right? Like three engines were, were already down um, and then additional engines failed uh, during the rest of the launch. And um, David, at, at one point while I was talking, he said, okay, should we talk about why those engines failed? So I want to hand it over to you. Why, why did we have three engines not working at liftoff? Well, we kind of already alluded to it with the title. Um, <laughs> this this first stage of this thing is really good at digging up concrete and throwing it into the air to some rather <laughs> impressive heights too from what the footage shows it's i mean yeah. it went, went up more than half the length of the rocket right i mean it was throwing stuff uh-huh. what it, that's got to be hundreds of feet into the air um and actually quite a distance too so and uh, and of course this all happened because uh, there's no way of diverting that exhaust yeah you just have a launch platform there Looks kind of like a little what, like kind of like a little milking stool or milk milk stool. Is that what they're called? Mm-hmm. Um, and it well, seems that's, that that's about it. The was it was it uh, Saturn One B launched mm-hmm. off of a thing called a milk stool, and that's a, I'm so glad that you said that because that's exactly what I think when I see it. They call it uh, Stage Zero, and like that structure has a particular name that I can't remember. But yeah, it told it in my mind. It's just the it's it's another milk stool. Yeah. I think Starship needs more than just a milk stool on a giant concrete platform. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about that yet, but yeah, so that's what happened. Uh, just the sheer you know, power of this thing um, dug quite far down into the concrete pad, revealing some rebar apparently and some other stuff. Uh, it just tore it up. I don't know what they were expecting to happen, but I mean, I guess everyone was actually expecting exactly that to happen and probably even Elon Musk. So some of the farthest pieces of debris that made it out into the ocean um, just sprayed up from the launch. I'm measuring about five, 600 meters. Surely they're like ballistically, I guess we don't know what, what angle they were launched at. In the close in footage, which I guess, you know, the, the official SpaceX one, you can see some chunks that are basically reaching at least as high as where Starship was, you know, before, it actually, you know, at that by the time the chunks reached there, it had moved up further. But basically, however tall, super heavy is, some of the chunks nearby the sure. platform exceeded that height. Yeah, like I was saying, I saw some. There was one big chunk that, while it was still lifting off, that came up to more than half, like halfway up hmm. uh, the rocket body. Like it clearly had to have been some damage done to the engines just just by looking at that. Imagine sitting in that thing and big chunk of <laughs> rebar comes flying out your window mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully they get that fixed by then so in in some of the post-crash images um one of which was taken by um an aviator like somebody flying a plane uh specifically flew close enough to take some photos which is pretty neat but like yeah you can see this um this milk stool has 
bare rebar showing because the concrete was just stripped off of it. Um, but the, I think it's good to remind ourselves like where this launch site actually is right. Boca Chica is, um, like a, a wetland. And that was one of the reasons why it took so long to get the FAA, uh, launch authorization is because of the environmental impact and, um, the engineering impact, like the civil engineering impact is, do you guys remember when they were first building this, how much dirt they brought in be, just because the, the ground there, uh, is, is not stable enough to really start building things this heavy on it. Um, and do you guys remember seeing like those just huge dump trucks full of dirt that they were bringing in to give themselves a nice, um, dirt to put their concrete pads on, right? Like it's uh, replacing uh. earth. And so, in that aerial image, you can also see some um, chocolate milk looking water beginning to pool in the, the divot that they carved out. And that's groundwater seeping up. The water table is, is very close to the surface here. So um, when we're talking about like building traditional launch equipment, none of that is really possible here without way more work than has gone into uh what what do they call it star starbase and so like fixing this is going to be really interesting but you know if you're expecting a big architectural overhaul i think you might need to change your expectations i would be kind of shocked if if that's what this wound up turning into but uh david like you said they they just blasted into a flat concrete slab. They tore straight through it and they began to expose the foundations uh, of the launch structure. Um, they honestly, they kind of dug their own uh, flame trench. Now, of course, all of the issues that I just talked about mean that they can't just like lay down concrete in this, you know, like tidy up the hole and then add some concrete and done um, to put anything below the surface. They are really going to have to do a huge amount of work to stabilize the earth. And I would be kind of shocked if they were able to keep their launch pad and their um, support tower, right? Stage one uh, collectively, if they're able to keep that there, the chat was talking about uh, which, did we think was going to happen first? Um, the FAA uh, investigation concluding or the launch site being ready to go for another launch. And honestly, all my money is on the FAA. I think the FAA is going to tear through this relatively quickly when we compare it to right very uh, variable uh, investigation times. But like, I think it's going to look trivial next to the amount of time that's going to have to go into not repairing this site. I think they're going to wind up having to um, rebuild um, at least their launch pad. We'll, we'll, we'll see, but I think the kind of infrastructure that is going to be required is going to be kind of drastic. So what's interesting is that like getting to the point that we're at now, construction on the Boca Chica site ate up a ton of time and money already, bringing in all of this dirt and everything. And so I wonder if one of the reasons that they tried to go this this route was because Elon didn't want to tolerate additional delays. Back in 2020, Elon had an interesting tweet um, where he said they were aspiring to have no flame diverter. Um, and at that point admitted that it might have been a bad idea. 
And so I, I kind of wonder if they were going for like a novel launch system. Sam in the chat over the week said, uh, it's so weird. You would expect there to be some harebrained innovative solution to the problem, but there just wasn't anything at all. You know, it's just, it's just a, a concrete slap. And that's really kind of surprising. Being able to pull off a novel launch solution would be cool. It'd be unexpected, but it's doable. Completely ignoring the problem altogether is shockingly short-sighted to me. And like, I'm really looking forward to hearing more uh, from the industry. Like what exactly was, was the, the thought here? Um, Now, Elon on Twitter did say that their data from the static fire suggested that they were going to do some concrete damage, but it wasn't going to be this bad. Keeping in mind, that their static fire was a 50% throttle target and they did not reach their full duration fire. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. I think we had rough estimates for what it would actually be. We weren't weren't even sure whether it was 50 or 60% full thrust, but it was, Yeah. yeah. And Mike in the chat points out there were also two engines that didn't start up properly. So we can consider that a, a, bad data set. Like that's not representative of what was going to happen here. But what's really interesting is that it sounds like um, they expected to have some degradation of their concrete, but they were expected to have, you know, a, it a braid away, like chunks taken out. Yeah. They're going to have to come back and do work. And it looks like what actually happened is that the concrete shattered is what Elon said. Um, and so like really Sarcasm aside, was the thought here that if they just ignored physics, it wouldn't take effect, right? Like, oh, if we if we just look away from it, we know that the physics engine turns off and the game just like (laughs) does, you know, kind of just warps things from point to point so that it doesn't have to do these physics calculations. If you're not close enough, like what, like that's I I don't want to be sarcastic about this, but like I'm kind of baffled. And then Sam also posted in Discord a, a really great post on the NASA Spaceflight Forum, uh, which comes from uh, NSF user uh, Cuddy, C-U-D-D-I-H-Y. And Sam points out that they are a fairly well-established user. They're not just somebody who's swinging in out of nowhere. And Cuddy says, I've waited for several days for the air to clear and for more info to become available, but it's time to say something. Frankly, Elon had good people helping him do this for many years, build launch sites. They successfully built him West Coast and East Coast launch pads. He said they weren't moving fast enough slash were being too traditional for Starship and let them go two years ago. I know one very senior engineer manager for him who was pushing for a more traditional flame trench slash diverter uh, at Boca Chica who Elon got tired of hearing from and fired. This is the result. Uh, This one's on Elon personally, in my humble opinion. People in SpaceX repeatedly warned him of the risks from the concrete. The tweet several months ago was his belated acknowledgement that they were probably right, but was too late at that point, and he was committed to the current flat pad at that point. So, right, this is kind of... Wow. The reason that I'm like, what, what did you expect was going to happen? Right? Like I can say that things are really obvious, but I'm an idiot. I I am not experienced in engineering. I am not experienced in rockets or rocket launches or construction or architecture or anything, but it sounds like there are plenty of people here who know what they're talking about, who 
express these things long before they occurred to me. So mm-hmm. like, I, I kind of feel justified in being like, what, what did you think was going to happen? So you have another bullet point in your line of questioning here that is interesting, which is why was this approved by the FAA? And I don't know the answer to that one, but I think as far as Elon's thought process, it was probably just that the next point you have uh, written here, which is 420-itis. So I think, I think there's an important distinction to make before we move Um, I'll let you move. But like what I was just talking about is why was there no flame trench to begin with? Then we have to move on to the question of why attempt a launch without a flame trench, right? Like building the site without a flame trench. Sure. I can kind of understand it. And in fact, Elon mentioned on Twitter that they had like a water cooled flame diverter that they were planning on installing and it wasn't ready. Um, And so like, you know, you can build the site and then make addendments to it or whatever. And like, okay, I, I kind of, I can understand like bad design, but David, you're moving into why use that design? And I think this is a, a really good question as well. So I, I'm going to hand it back to you. Go for it. Well, I kind of already said it, but yeah, I mean, I think he was impatient and there's not much that can be done at this point. Although I suppose you could put this off and, you know, install that water system, but I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know. Like you have to know more details about what was expected during this launch, but I'm guessing that he thought there was going to be some damage, but screw it. Let's do it anyway. Get the data that, you know, we can. I think it was something kind of like that just tired of waiting and you're not expecting this to be a perfect launch anyway so you know it's kind of the spacex ethos is kind of their way of doing things and i mean like obviously you don't want to fail early if you know you're going to fail but to some degree Mm -hmm. i think that was always on the table (laughs) i mean they were pretty sure about that i i could totally see the perspective of like okay we're probably going to have to rebuild our launch pad to some extent and the launch probably isn't going to be perfect but like we can decouple those things. We don't know what's going to fail on the, on the vehicle. Even if we know what's going to fail on the pad, we kind of have this expectation of what it's going to look like. We can go ahead and sacrifice the pad in order to get this launch data, which means that we can then continue, like we can actually go fix those problems and continue to iterate, which, which I think is, is pretty reasonable. I think, I think that's a pretty good, a pretty good explanation, David. Also, um, the bad call of using the static fire data to inform your expectations, it probably also comes from the same thing, right? It's like confirmation bias. You're like, well, we know it's already going to fail. You know, if that's our expectation, it's okay to like have this incomplete information because like, eh, how bad could it be? But I guess they, they also must have underestimated though, how bad the reflections of the pad would be to go and knock out three engines before you know, and then basically set you off on a mm-hmm. already more challenging test flight for, you know, picking up good data for the, for the rest of it. Yeah. And, and that's why it's a bias and not a heuristic, right? <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's confirmation bias. I know the pad's going to be destroyed, but everything's going to be okay. Here's more evidence that the pad's going to be destroyed, but everything's going to be okay. You know, like I, I already decided that everything's going to be okay. So, you know, it's like confirmation bias or whatever. Can I ask a, uh, a simple, uh, naive question, or I guess uh, I had forgotten what this story is. But how come uh, is 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 sea launch still off the table, one hundred percent? And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, because I remember I they, they so. looked into it a little bit, and then they thought, okay, well, maybe that's not cost effective or whatever. But like, if you literally yeah. can't launch this thing from here or 
Florida is the Cape is like this too, geologically, right? Maybe I guess maybe there's still more options on land that are better than going back to trying to go to the ocean. I, I mean, I would think I think I think the issue, though, is that like what's going to be more expensive uh, building a launch pad on Earth? Uh, on dirt or building a launch pad that can float and move around. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know the answer because there are benefits, there are pros and cons to both. Um, so I really, I really don't know, but I think that's probably more the issue is that like, if you can take the time and effort to build, um, a, a seaworthy launch platform, you can probably take the time and effort to build a land worthy <laughs> launch platform or a rocket worthy work. launch platform. I, I I don't know. I don't I don't think it's a naive question. I think it's a good question. I just don't have an answer for it. So the idea, right, that was already suggested, I think, probably by whoever it was that worked for Elon that was advising him on the construction of the launch pad, that you would just have to build up, right? You just have to I mean, you can still install a flame trench. It it, it might taller need to be a little bit stool, maybe. Or yeah, a taller milk stool. That's also a possibility. Um a ramp of some sort. The problem though is you can't build up. Without building down as well, you need deeper foundations. And in this case, you need to replace sure, but... more of of the earth, and that is is totally doable. And you're right; that is the correct response, I believe, from uh, you know civil engineering YouTube. <laughs> I believe that's the correct thing to do. Is well, if you can't bury it, you just build on top of the earth, and you just re you know give it better foundations and. You do all these things. And I, I think that's the issue is they, they kind of did, they designed the site with a certain amount of weight in mind. So they, they prep the site, they come and they build the things and then they kind of, they're kind of stuck. They're locked into those, those parameters that they've already designed for and building bigger, building farther up, building heavier requires a lot more work than I think they're, they're super willing to tolerate given the launch cadence that they, they wanted or the, the speed with which they want to get to, you know, real orbital launches. Damn. I just really wish we had a nice, like somewhere on the Eastern coast or the Gulf of Mexico or somewhere, just having a nice cliff that leads yeah. to the ocean. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a nice, heavy bedrock. But I'm not sure. Maybe in somewhere in Maine, or we got to go to Canada, possibly. Maybe <laughs> probably. just launch from there. So, I, I, real quick, I feel like Elon Musk has got a lot of really nasty things uh, in his uh, history, recent or otherwise. But I do want to give him credit for these these two tweets. Um, he said, three months ago, we started building a massive water cooled." steel plate to go under the launch mount wasn't ready in time when we wrongly thought based on static fire data that Fondag, the brand of, of high performance concrete that they use that Fondag would make it through one launch. Looks like we can be ready to launch again in one to two months, still early analysis, but the force of the engines when they throttled up may have shattered the concrete rather than simply eroding it. The engines were only at half thrust for the static fire test. So this is like, these are all things that we've referenced up till now, but I think just admitting we wrongly thought based on static fire data that the Fondag would make it. I think it's really good just to say we wrongly thought it's, you know, maybe it's not sufficient, you know, whatever, but like, I think just saying that once deserves credit. Um, and like, just like you positively reinforce all sorts of behaviors, let's positively reinforce this behavior and say, yeah, great. Great job. Those are the words you need to use. And 
granted, SpaceX is really good at admitting their failures, like from very early on. Like, I think one of the reasons, David, that you and I really wanted to start the show was partially just because of how how SpaceX was the first company to really talk about their failures. And I think we both found it really interesting. And it's fantastic that now they're not the only example of that. Yeah, it was a big change because it because it gives you something to talk about when there are well, I think that they were generally just more open, you know, and yeah. Yep. Uh, which is very different from traditional contracted companies by NASA. It, it, that's a whole other, you know, like, yeah. So this is just much more interesting because there's something there to talk about. And boy, this was a big one. There's still room for criticism, but not that far. The rocket got one foot off the pad and set a record as being the largest launch ever. I think because this was such a big event that one thing that I kept seeing was that a lot of, I guess, just in the various media platforms and outlets, that there was a lot of discussion about if this was even a failure or success. And it kind of frustrated me because I was like, well, that's, you know, this was a test. This is like, this is standard procedure. And it was just kind of frustrating me that people were talking about it as though it was supposed to be successful. And then they just failed miserably. And I, I don't know, I, I just kind of wanted to say that because it was like really frustrating <laughs> That I think it's just because it's being very widely talked about, but like we know how this works. But for I guess like your layman who doesn't care about such things, they they see this and they get the wrong idea, and that just that just really kind of you know irks me. Yeah, I agree. Was this a success or failure? Is the wrong question to ask. Yep. I liken those commenters to uh, that GIF of the person trying to sweep the ocean back, like like they're <laughs> on the beach or they're trying to sweep the water back into the ocean. As the waves keep, you know, lapping up on the, on the beach, <laughs> it's 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 a fool's errand to try to, you know, mm. you know, you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like with with their criticisms, it's 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 a fool's errand. You can ask critical questions about that, like like questions that kind of have a negative um, impact. Was this the right time to do this test? Was this test performed in the best way it could? But like, was this test a success or a failure? It's not the it's not the right question. So. Do you guys think that this is going to have an impact on Artemis? I think that there's so much going on with SLS, like getting that thing to fly, that that's the limiting case. And so even if I think that maybe we'll have the, the round two of HLS developed and figured out by the time we're ready to actually get ready for Artemis 3. So if if somehow Star, Starship really did become a dead end, which, you know, at this point, I, I think it'll still fly. But even in the worst case that it becomes a dead end, I still think that you got that second provider, hopefully, that would be able to yeah. cobble something together in time. Because again, in time might be 20, I mean, what are they even shooting for now? 2026, 20, 20, like, for it Artemis seems 3, to, I think for Artemis 3. Yeah, but it skips. I wouldn't be, you know, what if it gets skip back to 2028 or 2029, well then yeah, Starship could recover or the second HLS provider could be ready by then. So that's my optimistic 2025 is what Wikipedia says. I'm not going to hold my breath for, <laughs> for that. Yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is like in terms of like the impact on Artemis, I think having to rebuild your launch site is a fairly drastic issue. I mean, it's kind of like how the best mass to trim off of your rocket is mass on the first stage. Or is mass on the second stage because it kind of like continues on here. Like this is going to delay their next launch. I know Elon tweeted about uh, ready to launch again in one to two months. I think that's only going to be true if they rebuild the exact same <laughs> launch site. I don't know how Do it again. they're going to manage to not destroy the next rocket. 
Um, and certainly I don't think that they're going to be able to not destroy enough rockets to be able to support Artemis. But having to rebuild your launch site really delays obtaining more knowledge, right? Doing more launch tests. And like, it really sucks that this launch had so many engine failures because um, the Raptor engine is another like critical point for this, for this vehicle. You need to have a lot of Raptors going all at once. Like it, it's a, it's a lot of work to, to build a rocket to do that. And if you can't get those engines working properly, and they've certainly had a, some issues that we don't know if they fixed yet. Um, maybe they don't know if they fixed yet. Like you need that data sooner rather than later. And you need the, the flight data sooner rather than later. I guess the flight data is not as big of a deal. Like fixing just guidance software and stuff is pretty easy to do, but like they don't have any data on their reentry. They definitely lost some, uh, some heat tiles on this launch. Luckily that's not something that should, um, impact Artemis too much. Uh, cause it'll just be tankers, uh, the brief refueling vehicles that will really need to come back down and presumably they'll have a big enough fleet that it, it'll be okay. But yeah, I think, I think the launch site, it sucks because it has nothing to do with the rocket, but it's something that could have a really big impact. And right. And Bechdel screwing up the mobile launch tower too, is a big part of why SLS is kind of a basket case when it comes to its uh, schedule. But yeah, what you're saying just made, made me, you know, think about like it basically covered. So, so we have learned about the Raptors, but we're not far from the out of the clear or in the clear yet because right they seem to fail in all the different ways you could kind of get them to fail like some of them were probably struck by debris on launch but then other ones shut down during flight right it'd be what five of them that flew that shut down during flight and one of them that still had that kind of you know residual burning to some extent uh, probably happening and one of the in-flight failures um like really was bright like there was a uh the the whole plume oh mm. just got super bright um i believe it was a different one but it might have been the same one but I, a different one had um some of the like sidewall material above it blow out before the engine went out uh-huh. um which suggests like an explosion higher up i think scott manley suggested that it could it, it's it's terrifyingly close to the hydraulic power units um which you know would take out your steering but luckily that doesn't seem to have been the case here although you know they did start tumbling um when they were up uh getting close to separation but i think that's more due to their the the thrust performance where like if you're under thrust you have to start tipping your nose up to try and maintain the flight pro the launch profile that you've picked out. And so it might've just been that, you know, as the first stage gets lighter and lighter already, you've got the fins on top uh, of starship making the thing fly like a backwards lawn dart. Um, and so you just, the center mass moves farther and farther forward. And at some point you just lose the ability to, to stay on top. Um, of that guidance requirement so but but who knows like maybe they also weren't able to uh thrust vector as fast or as strongly as as they really would need to if they if they lost one or more hydraulic power units i don't i don't know man like like i this is me just going off because like you said dennis we've seen raptors fail in just about every failure mode you can think of so (laughs) <laughs> it's it's really kind of crazy and this was a question i had 
um, since we're talking about the actual motion and orientation. Is this for real that they were going to do a flip and the stage set during the flip? Like a pitch maneuver? That's what they said on the stream, it sounded like. That's how I heard it. That's what I heard, it. too. So that's what I heard, and I heard someone say that that's how it's always done with separations of first and second stages, but that's not true, is it? Or am I just crazy? Because you want it to be a nice axial separation, right? Then you can flip the first stage. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because like these are very large vehicles. So like maybe if you do a little bit of a pitch, you get a little bit of like centripetal motion. Maybe it gives you a more advantageous um, aerodynamic uh, environment to do the separation. Like, I don't know, but like, I, I was totally shocked and I will eat my hat. I, I will, who was it that ate the hat? Peter Beck. Peter Peter Beck, Beck. Yeah. <laughs> I will eat Peter Beck's hat. <laughs> if, if they pitch more than certainly more than 90 degrees, I'll bet 20 sounds pretty extreme to me, but like, you really don't want your, your upper stage having to pull itself back uh, too far to actually light up its engines. Uh, uh, like a 360 flip is out of the question. There's no way that that's happening. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm setting myself up for um, some hat eating, but like I, that just sounds totally ridiculous. But then again, like the fact that they said now we're beginning rotation for stage separation or the flip for stage separation, like that's uh that, that is super shocking. Um, Leon in the chat says pitching creates side loads you don't want to deal with in staging. Totally. Exactly. Especially yeah. when you've got two very different ballistic coefficients for these two stages. But we did see um, this whole stack rotate like two or three times before before they engage the FTS. Um, actually, before the first stage started to disintegrate um, is, is what it looks like it actually is. But like it, it flipped several times and looked ramrod straight like it. I can't believe that something this big didn't tear itself apart as soon as it was, you know, 90 degrees uh, off its you know travel direction. And presumably, right, it just made those several rotations because they were having trouble with the FTS because it looked like. That didn't happen so. the way they had hoped. Okay, because I'd heard that maybe. In fact, I think it was a Scott Manley video where he says that you can see the first and second stage venting something, but and that's probably the FTS that was supposed to have you know detonated. Um, I, I don't know if there was like debt cord running down the side of the tanks or whatever. I mean, exactly how it works, but something didn't blow up when it should have. But I mean, eventually it did. And that was mostly just due to the dynamic loads and because it did start to bend eventually and then the whole thing just blew up. But I don't know if it was the FTS system that caused that. No, no. I think the um, the venting that, you, that we see, because you can see it, is from the first stage beginning to buckle um, up at the top. And there's what I'm assuming is a leaked flight footage frame uh that showed up um on i think on twitter but uh it was also posted in our uh in our chat uh which is nice to get alerted to that because i don't know if i would have seen that very very quickly i, pro I probably would have seen it by now but i saw it pretty early and so yeah I, I i think that it showed a lot of rigidity and like structural stability but I think it did fail, and I don't think that they activated the FTS until it actually, you know, the, until the FTS actually activated. I don't think that there was an issue with the FTS. Uh, if there was, we will certainly find out about it from uh, FAA. <laughs> like, we don't have yeah. to worry about finding out about that. We will know. 
but yeah, I think that I think they just let it go as long as they could just for the 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 data, which I, I like. I don't have I don't see a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was my initial take too. Is it exactly? Um, but then I'd seen the Scott Manley video where he says that maybe they were having trouble with it. But uh, yeah, I thought let this run as long as they can because they're all about gathering that data during this launch. And if it's you know well over the ocean, it's not you know causing any harm really um and they knew that it was going to come back down pretty quickly at that point so why not wait a couple seconds so yeah so starship didn't dis- didn't disappoint in terms of spectacle at least i mean it disappointed for not being able to complete much of an orbit but i mean it gave us it gave us a lot to look at <laughs> like they said on the stream yeah it was a spectacle for sure All right, so let's just do two short and sweets this week. I don't think we did any last week, so we'll just do two this week. (laughs) What's the first one, Dennis? First up, Swedish astronaut may fly on Axiom mission to ISS. The Swedish National Space Agency announced that the ESA astronaut to fly on a future Axiom mission to the ISS will be a Swedish astronaut. This would be the second astronaut to fly from the Nordic country after Christer Fuglsong flew on two shuttle missions in 2006 and 2009, although NASA astronaut Jessica Meir does hold Swedish citizenship due to her mother. The Swedish National Space Agency intends to fly the astronaut within a year, though they haven't been selected yet. This won't be the first European to fly on an Axiom mission, as an Italian astronaut will be flying on the upcoming Axiom 3 mission, scheduled later this year. Then next up, Rocket Lab to reuse a flown engine. Rocket Lab is taking its next step in first stage reuse. The company plans to refly a previously flown Rutherford engine on an upcoming mission scheduled for the third quarter of this year. The engine planned for reuse was flown last year in May. During that mission, the first stage was captured via helicopter but had to be released into the ocean and recovered due to load instabilities. Now relying solely on an ocean recovery, Rocket Lab plans to assess first stage reusability under these conditions for eventual reuse of the entire first stage. So they're just going to parachute still. but but not capture it, let it drop into the ocean and then just recover it and actually reuse the whole first stage, even though it's been salted in the ocean. Shuttle yeah. SRBs. Yeah, kind of like an SRB. So that's an interesting way of doing things. Not Novel techniques are great, but they're novel for a reason. It's because they're not the easiest thing to do. And sometimes that's an issue. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. question of comments and correction burns and uh i guess cool things to watch on youtube so ben do you want to take this first one i don't know what this has to do with anything but it's kind of cool nope it has nothing to do with anything uh uncle willie in the chat posted a link to a planetary society article um about a skydiver who was skydiving like in the sky and met a rock and the question is is this rock a meteor uh, uh, yeah, a meteor because it had not yet touched the ground. Um, and uh, planetary, uh, the planetary society has got this great article about how the answer to that question uh, involves knowledge obtained from Apollo twelve. It's a really enjoyable read. I, I recommend it. Um, check the show notes. And then also got a cool email from Andrew Z about uh, with just a lot of footage of lifting bodies. So we were talking about those, what was that two weeks ago? From several weeks ago, um, lots of lifting body footage to be found on YouTube of 
basically these types of things that, as far as I'm concerned, shouldn't be able to fly but totally do, these <laughs> flying or gliding bathtubs. Uh, <laughs> so that's pretty neat. There was even one that I don't I don't think it's in the notes, but I came across it was by Amy Shira Title. Was it Vintage Space? Um, and that's pretty cool and worth watching as well. All right, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We just got two winners. We have Uncle Willie and Cy Kyle, and the clue was Shuttle Spelunkin'. So, Dennis, what's the event? Obviously, it's something to do with the shuttle. And if it's not, I would be very surprised and disappointed. <laughs> Indeed, it is a uh, shuttle mission. But uh, the clue, or this event, is for April 28th, 1985. And it is the event is the day before the launch of STS-51B, which mercifully still fits in the window. Now... What do I mean by that? And what do I mean by spelunking? Well, this was a, you know, it's got the horrible kind of name. So 51B. So this was a 80s pre-Challenger mission. Uh, it was actually, Challenger was the orbiter that flew. And it was Space Lab 3, which it's kind of hard to count all the Space Lab missions because sometimes they would fly up just like a pallet unpressurized and it was part of the Space Lab uh, scene, I guess. But um, this was really the first operational one with an actual Space Lab capsule uh, module sitting in the payload bay, right? And so this was, uh, there were two of these modules that were built by um, the, the European Space Agency, and they, you know, were specifically dedicated to doing science, right? And this is a little different than Space Hab, right, which also flew in the shuttle payload bay, but that was Done, that was built by a private company, and that one wasn't necessarily as science-focused uh, as, as much as Space Lab was. And so, uh, you know, this was a mission I mentioned uh, with Fly, uh, Challenger was the orbiter, and uh, the, the commander was Bob Overmeyer, who was one of these first-gen guys. Um, I believe he flew on STS-5 or 6, so he was, you know, he was kind of one of the first generation of uh, uh, shuttle pilots. He came over from the manned orbital laboratory days. And uh, and then Fred Gregory was the pilot. And so this was the first uh, African-American to fly a shuttle. Um, uh, Guy Bluford and uh, uh, Ron McNair were both mission specialists. And so uh, the idea being a space lab mission is uh, you've got 15 science experiments and a one-week mission, and you're going to get a lot of science done because, you know, this is literally within the first, you know, handful of years of shuttle flying, and so we can do all this great microgravity research. Um, and what kind of things do you want to test? Well, three of them, uh, three of these uh, 15 experiments had crystal growth in their name, so material science ones. Uh, two are fluid dynamics where you got to send little drops and have them doing things, right? Yeah, now this is, yeah, the, the infamous... Crystal growths, which were just yeah. everywhere, yeah. Oh, and I and I didn't mention, um, or no, I, did I mention? Yeah. So this this was the first operational one. The last time they flew uh, Space Lab One, uh, the the module, uh, it was basically just to really test it and see if it was you know if it was working. So that was more of a, a test mission, and this was the first operational one. And what happened to Space Lab Two, I do not know. Um, but as far as yeah, back to the experiments, uh, three were crystal growth. Two of them were fluid dynamics. Uh, four of them were either astronomy or sampling the atmosphere, the upper, you know, the, the thermosphere that the shuttle flies through on orbit. And then six of them were life science ones. And of the life science experiments, two of them used humans as the guinea pigs, while the others used animals. And that will be important for the clue. And so specifically, the other experiments were both the experiments as well as like things to help support the, you know, I guess the cages that 
housed the animals, but there were two monkeys and 24 rats. And so that's what we were sending. Uh, according to the press kit, this was, quote, the first large contingent of animals, end quote, that we had put on a uh, longer duration space mission. And so, uh, yeah. Now, I figured I'd talk a little bit about how payload operations work for these kinds of uh, space lab missions, since that's where the clue, uh, shell spelunking, ultimately comes in. And so uh, we've got the Payload Operations Control Center, or POCC, at Johnson Space Center. And they've got, you know, their own mission control room and everything. It's sitting right next to the, the main, you know, mission control room, the kind of famous one that we're all familiar with, with, you know, the flight director and, you know, uh, Capcom and all those good people that are, you know, doing, the, doing their work there. And so uh, adjacent to them, they've got the people who are in charge of the, you know, the payload ops. And so they have shifts and uh, these shifts are basically, you know, they're just the ones that are in charge of all the very complicated stuff that it takes to get your experiments and your equipment and everything uh, into the shuttle and integrated with the shuttle and on the pad uh, and safe and sound. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with living organisms that I can only imagine adds another layer of complexity to it. And so uh, we had talked about how uh, payloads are uh, packed into the shuttle, um, either horizontally or vertically through the payload checkout room, which is uh, basically what the bulk of the rotating surface structure is. And so that's that was cool where you basically you know, put the capsule or put the payload into a capsule. You go and drive that up very slowly, horizontally, or sorry, vertically to the rotating service structure. And then you hoist it up and get it into the payload checkout room, which is a clean room. And then you can integrate the payload onto the shuttle that way while keeping it clean the whole time. But in this case, um, they actually installed the uh, space lab uh, horizontally in the, uh, the orbiter processing facility. And uh, there was a piece of equipment that uh, I had not heard of before called the, uh, the Cargo Integration Test Equipment, or CITE, C-I-T-E. And uh, they, they were able to skip that. Uh, but typically that was a, you know, a high fidelity mock-up of what the payload bay looks like. And it was just literally when you're making your pallet or your you know, space lab module or whatever thing, you know, your spacecraft that you want to fly and put it in the shell cargo bay, this is where you would test it. And so that was, actually there was a couple uh, of of these site simulators, right? I guess simulating the payload bay. And uh, one of them was in the operations and checkout building and then the other in the vertical processing facility, which I think might be the older name for the orbiter processing facility. Could be wrong about that. I'm not entirely sure. But in any event, uh, yeah, so uh, they installed it horizontally and then eventually, and, and, and specifically, uh, they installed it on March 27th, okay? And remember, this clue is for April 28th, the day before the April 29th launch. So there's a good month between when they had the Space Lab module installed and how long the orbiter is sitting stacked vertically at the pad. So you can imagine, right, this has to be a clean environment, and you've got two monkeys and 24 rats that are probably going to get a little hungry or maybe a little stir-crazy when they're spending a month just sitting in a shuttle payload bay sealed away, right? That isn't going to work. And so what you need to do is basically set up Space Lab, get it in the orbiter and get the orbiter on the pad, and then while it's vertical, that's when you then, 28 hours before the shuttle actually launches, you go and you send these teams to add the animals 
to Spacelab. And that's where things get complicated. So, and that's where the clue comes in too. You got to do a little shuttle spelunking to make this happen. So stepping back, right? The way, uh, you know, the, the space lab itself, it, it just looks like an ISS module. Like, like it looks like it could be, you know, the destiny lab. And so it's this, you know, cylindrical canister. And because the airlock that gets you from, you know, the mid deck of the shuttle into the payload bay, that airlock is at the base of the payload bay. Like, you know, what you would consider the floor of it. So it's not a straight shot from there to the entrance of Space Lab. And so basically it runs the, the, the when you get out the airlock from the mid-deck, you go, you're in the mid-deck, you get into the airlock, and you have to travel along the base of the cargo or of the payload bay until you get close to Space Lab. And then you do a 90 degree turn and then another night to get, you know, I guess, uh, up to the height of the uh, entrance to Space Lab, and then another 90-degree turn to actually get yourself in there in the first place. And so this tunnel, we'll have some pictures we'll share in the show notes. It's pretty... I've never seen the inside of it before. I know there's a lot of things about space that are scary for me, and I think... But most of them are actually in space. And most of them are actually <laughs> not in on space. the ground. Yeah, that's, that's fair too. But in space or not, this thing would scare like is scary because this tunnel i don't know how many tens of feet long it is and it's just a long narrow tunnel that you have to float through on orbit or spelunk through when it's on the ground because now that the shuttle is vertical you have to go from the mid deck down into this long tunnel which then has a 90 degree horizontal turn before it then reaches the entrance of space lab and then space lab is also like there's no floor underneath you. You have to repel into Space Lab itself. And so that's the trick is you have to essentially repel your way through there in this non-trivial way. And the way you did this was using the MVAC or Module Vertical Access Kit. And so this was good for Space Labs. It was good for Space Habs. Anytime you wanted to stick some things in the payload after in the shuttles, you know, whatever module you've got sitting in the payload bay while it's already vertical. And so it's essentially a system of wires and pulleys that you're able to go and spelunk, you know, repel your way down there and also have a nice little bag that you can fill with experiments or presumably spider monkeys and rats and whatnot and send them (laughs) down there with you too. And uh, one of them is, uh, well, it was attempted to be sold in in 2010 on Heritage Auctions, um, but it looks like it wasn't sold. So I don't know if maybe you can go and uh, track it down if you want to own this yourself. I don't know if you got to pay tens of thousands of dollars or what for it, but... um, I think it's pretty cool. And so this is the first time that they were actually using this. It was, you know, you had two uh, teams of people that were trained for this very tightly, you know, very precise choreographing that needed to happen because they also had to do this all in bunny suits because, again, the the interior of the shuttle is clean at this time. Uh, At T minus 28 hours... Uh, uh, the loading team installs the kit in the shuttle. And so, like I said, it's, just, it's a matter of uh, pulleys and, and, and wires and harnesses. And you set it up in the mid-deck to then go through the airlock, through the tunnel that accesses the, basically gets you to Space Lab, and then into Space Lab itself. And then two hours before they load the animals, they sent a the technician down there first. 
uh, to turn on and verify that the uh, animal holding facilities, I'm just going to call them the cages, are working because that would suck to send down your 24 rats and it turns out that you're going to have to, oh, well, this, you actually can't get them in there because, you know, the, the AC isn't working on their little uh, future home for the next week. Once, once uh, they verify that the, the, the cages are, are working and everything's good there, then they, uh, the scientists over at Hangar L give the animals a, free, a pre-flight checkout. So I'm just, you know, imagining they're holding up, like, basically treating the same way that the uh, the astronauts go through a, a checkout. I'm picturing the Apollo astronauts with their Snoopy hats and they're, you know, getting suited up and everything. We'll do the same thing with the... Uh, with with the uh, the monkeys and hangar L, of course I'm joking, but but uh, hangar L apparently I think the L stands for life sciences, and so this was a, a building specifically designed for um, you know life science uh, mission prep and things like that. And so then uh, the the animals after passing uh, pre flight checkout, they take a 45 minute trip in a specially designed van, like specially designed not just for space lab but specific to the mission. And the animals, I guess, you know, slowly and eventually get to the pad. And then it takes about two hours to load them uh, again on these little baskets, um, you know, because it's not like. Uh, you know, I could imagine the person spelunking down in their harness and having like a monkey holding them, like hugging them as they're rappelling down, which would be pretty sweet and awesome. But I'm sure, if I'm sure they don't actually that do cute. that. If only it was that cute. Yeah. Little monkey with a Snoopy hat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just painting a picture for everybody to, to, to visualize. And so basically this was the first time they did it and they were able to load them just fine. And the flight went well. They were able to collect some great science and data. Wait, you said you said the the first time that they did it. How many shuttle flights had animal experiments on board? More than one. Uh, there was one. Yeah, no, they 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 had a bunch of space lab flights, and a lot of them. So space lab flights had different categories. Where sometimes they were the ones like yeah. like David you had talked about, where they had all the um, uh, uh, telescopes essentially on a the integrated pointing platform whatever that thing was mm-hmm. called um sometimes it, it, they'd have them just on unpressurized or exposed cargo pallets and then all of the uh, uh electronics for running those experiments they would be put in the pressurized igloo so no humans would go in the igloo but you'd have to still have it under pressure so that you know you didn't need uh, vacuum rated electronics to be able to run the experiments i guess and then there were the ones where they actually had modules that would go and so of those 16 i don't know which ones you know specifically had animals and which ones didn't but um they definitely did like they were sending up crickets they'd send up all sorts of critters uh to test different things fish they had fish at one point yeah <laughs> invertebrates and and fish like sure but like I didn't realize that any monkeys had ever flown on on shuttle. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I didn't realize. Yeah, if you were just asking about monkeys specifically, I don't know if they reflew. Well, monkeys no, either. I mean, I did say animals. Like, okay, yeah, I think the I think if I remember correctly, the monkeys were a bit. They were a bit much. You know, they were <laughs> <laughs> they were a little challenging to deal with. They they didn't appreciate space. I don't think they had an ad astra situation on board, but maybe you know. One of the monkeys got ill-tempered at some point, and you know, some of the crew might not have liked working with them. So I'm not sure if they actually reflew monkeys again. I mean, like, also, you know, monkeys can be hard to keep. Like, they're curious. They're hard to keep interested, mm-hmm. and they're hard to keep clean. And like, yeah, rat, rats would be bad enough, but at least like rat poop is fairly contained. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> I can't imagine flying with monkeys and they must've been so stressed out that like Mm. they're not going to be happy monkeys. Not that, not that happy monkeys are that much easier to (laughs) control. (laughs) They're going to be a handful no matter what. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, ham, 
ham flu, you know, on a, on a, on a, in a mercury capsule. And this is just the next logical conclusion of just, you know, I mean, ham was a chimp, I believe. Uh, or no, was it was ham? Yeah, ham was yeah, a no. chimp. No, but these, chimp. but these were monkeys, and so you know, these were spider monkeys. I, I saw one thing that said spider monkeys, but the press kit just refers to them as monkeys, and so I'm going to give the press okay. kit. Okay, it's, it's ambiguous uh, necessarily what kind. But squirrel monkeys are are really cute ones. They really are. Uh, STS forty had jellyfish. Yeah, they have a very interesting like embryonic development, so that would be a cool thing to. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm saying that actually a spider monkey was launched uh, as mm. early as 1959 on a Jupiter rocket alongside. Miss Abel, which was a rhesus macaque, so just different species flying together. Wow. Yeah, we got to add that to the document. <laughs> STS-65 had jellyfish as well, but it also had newts. I just wonder when the next cat is going to reach orbit. If cats have anything to say about it, never. Never. <laughs> never, yeah. <laughs> yeah. None of this putting them in a sled and having them be the uh, the commander of the vessel. I'm talking like, you know. Right, right, right. Starship. <laughs> yeah. <have> a- <laughs> Right. If cats cats have anything to say about it when they're in charge, when we're the experiments, then they're willing to deal with this whole gravity issue. Yeah. And so that's that's just, you know, kind of a a look into what Space Lab and Space Lab processing operations are like. And, uh, you know, the unfortunately, I couldn't find a document specifically on the uh, the MVAC itself, this this harness and pulley system. But uh, there are some really good schematics uh, that kind of show you what it's like and how kind of wild it is, as well as an image of a, uh, a person in a bunny suit rappelling down. And uh, yeah, I mean, based image. on that, yeah, based on that picture, they, they clearly must be just entering uh, Space Lab itself. Yeah. Um, at that time. Honestly, I think that 90 degree turn makes it a little easier. Well, two 90 degree turns makes it a little easier because then you have like a little ledge before you're mm. in the lab, but you still have to be able to repel around that bend, which could be, which could be tricky. And it looks like they've got two different you know, wires coming down at least if, if, yeah, so you like know, a, a pole maybe one's something. dedicated. Yeah. And one might be dedicated for the for the meat bag and the other one dedicated for the experiment. For the smaller meat bags. Yeah. Mm, the smaller meat bags. And just want to cap things off with a hat tip to Uncle Willie, who had originally suggested this event. And so I'm really glad you did. And I learned a lot researching it. So thank you. Thank you, Dennis. That was that was really cool. I thought humans were the only primates that had ever flown on shuttle. I like I had no clue. And like that's totally a kind of thing that I would that I would have known and I totally didn't. So great job. Uh, next week is going to be the second through the eighth of May. David, do you have a clue for us? Uh, yep. Uh, so next week in 1965, two score in 18 years and still going. Um, could you say that a little bit more like Daniel Day-Lewis, please? Yeah. Two score in 18 years and still going. I can't do Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> hey, but, that's good. Or, <laughs> that's okay. Neither can Justin McElroy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to and you don't happen to be John Wilkes Booth, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. The Twitter API might have finally noticed uh, that we're still able to access it. So Twitter may or may not be working. Uh, the guaranteed way to get in uh, your guess is to use our Discord. There's a channel called This Week SF. There are invite links pinned on our Twitter and our Reddit. And I believe if you go to the orbitalmechanics.com slash Discord, you'll also get an invite. Uh, but yep, send us your guess. 
and good luck. Good luck. Let's move right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. Only three for this week. Uh, all three of them launches, though. So what's the first one? Right. So first up, it's Falcon Heavy again. Uh, got delayed a little bit from when we mentioned it last week. So this is Falcon Heavy flying Viasat 3 Americas, uh, 3KA band uh, communication satellites. Um, it's going to be launching on Wednesday, April 26th uh, at 23, 24 hours UTC. The window continues for what, like just under an hour to uh, April 27th at uh, 0.118 hours UTC. And then next up, we have a very interesting launch. And so this is a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking the O3B M-Power 3 and 4 satellites to orbit. And so while I don't care much for the name of the spacecraft, uh, they are pretty cool. They're like these high-throughput comm satellites. But what's interesting is that Boeing... Uh, is you know had built them and they're putting them in medium earth orbit and so i don't think we see enough mio and so it's pretty cool i think anytime any uh any spacecraft are getting sent up to there and so this launch has a window from uh on april 28th from 2112 utc to 2327 utc and it's going to be flying out of slick 40 at the cape and then after that on the 1st of May. So this is the Tropics 2 mission, which is launching the Tropics 4 and 5 CubeSats. So yeah, these are um, hurricane monitoring satellites uh, launching with Rocket Lab on an Electron May 1st at 0100 UTC through 0300 UTC. Um, and that's launching from the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1B. So that'll be a beautiful launch. And they're going to low Earth orbit. So, yep, some CubeSats going to low Earth orbit to look at hurricanes. There we go. All right. So those are your upcoming space flood events. So with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Citronaut68, Colin, Deathkin, Mike, Greek, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Leon Running Man, Psycon, Delta V, and Azucar for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the Orbital Mechanics slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.